Good morning. Well, about eight of you. Good morning. I want to uh, just add my two cents of plug to uh, the encouragement you just heard about getting involved in the ministry to uh, youth and teens out there. Uh, my home church, <coughs> we started something similar over 25 years ago, and this is not exaggeration when I say that in the last 20, 25 years, we have seen in our community, which is a very broken community in East Senio County, we've seen between eight and 10,000 teenagers come to Christ Jesus. And every year, we put a lot of finances into it, but it's not the finances that make it work. It's the volunteers. And a lot of times, if you're past 18, 20, 25, you know, and you're thinking about how can I relate to a teenager, you know, especially if you're not of the rap age, you know, you, you just see these huge cultural barriers and everything else between you and teenagers. Uh, what we have found, and as I said, in our part of San Diego, though a lot of San Diego is very wealthy, beautiful beach coastal communities, but in East San Diego County, where we're at, we've got a lot of broken families. We've got a lot of kids growing up in drugged-out families, uh, gang violence, and everything else. What we have found is more than anything else, it doesn't matter what the outward appearance is. It doesn't matter what the demeanor is. It doesn't matter what the cultural barrier. So many teenagers coming from broken families today are just looking to someone who's safe that they can talk to, that they can get to know. And we literally, uh, we've got a couple of hundred volunteers that are regularly involved in our six drop-in centers across East County. We've got volunteers that are actually in their 60s, you know. And you would think, well, how, you know, what's a 14-year-old coming, coming out of, you know, crime or different problems? How is he going to relate to a 6-year-old? They're looking because so many of them come from a broken background. They're just looking for someone with a little bit of love, a little bit of wisdom they can trust. Well, I'm glad you're encouraged. I thought that was pretty good. I want to, uh, the, uh, all those prophetic words or words of encouragement we just heard, I think were inspired by the Holy Spirit. But I want to draw your attention to the very first one that talked about that God is really wanting to bring a deeper revelation of his majesty, his sovereignty, and the wonder of who he is. Because universally, uh, across, you know, most of you know I travel extensively internationally, but I'm seeing very similar things for the last two years. I'm seeing it in churches in Australia, in Asia, across North America and Europe. There is something quite powerful happening between the interaction of the Spirit of God and a lot of churches right now. And God is wanting to take us into a much deeper understanding of who he is. I want to tell you about one church, not my home church, but another church in San Diego, California, um, what they've gone through in just the last two years. And this is a church that was started about 30 years ago. Uh, San Diego has about 4 million people, not as big as London or something like that. But, you know, we've got a lot of people. There's a lot of churches, a lot of small churches, and a lot of, a lot of large churches. And there's a huge variety of churches. And because of my uh, prophetic ministry, a lot of the prophecies I've given over the years, 
uh, have made the roundabouts, and even though pastors, I don't even know who they are, they've heard of me. Some of them possibly would like me. Some of them would never want to meet me. Uh, maybe a few of them would like to eat, meet me in a dark alley with a crowbar or something. I don't know. But, uh, you know, it, it's just I'm, I'm, I'm known in a number of circles in Southern California. And about two years ago, I uh, received from a friend of mine a message that a pastor of a very large church, about 8,000 people in San Diego, wanted to meet with me. And I've never met the guy, but I, I know a little bit about him. I know that his church does not go in for prophecy. His church does not go in for signs and wonders, healings and miracles, at least as far as I would think about it. And I thought, well, you know, I, this guy probably has some issues with me. He probably wants to chew me out. He probably wants to put me in my place, and I don't have time for this. But I just felt like the Lord said, just go ahead and, and meet with him. And so uh, we set up a time, and I went to his uh, church about a half hour. Uh, San Diego is a very wide county. Drove about half hour north and to his church, and I met with him and three of his senior leaders, and uh, he said, uh, Mark, can you tell me about yourself and tell me about your life and your journey with Christ? And I'm still kind of trying to suss this out. You know, what's his angle? What is, you know, is, what is he wanting to slam me up the side of the head with, you know? But so I just uh, began to share about my journey with the Lord and what I've seen God do internationally. And again, this is a church, they don't go in for prophecy as we would think about it, that some of the things you saw this morning, especially someone speaking in tongues, if that happened there on a Sunday morning, that person would be laid out in the south pasture, you know. Um, They just don't go in for that sort of thing, but... I could tell as I began to share about my journey and a lot of the uh, signs and wonders and prophetic things we've seen God do internationally, they were really paying attention. They were really listening, not in a critical way, but in a real hungry way. And I know this guy. uh, He started his church about 30 years ago, and week by week they do Bible teaching. They go through the whole Bible every year, and it's just kind of main and plain, and it's a good church. A lot of people have been saved through it, but very, very conservative. And then he said, well, I've heard about your ministry for years, and I thought maybe you could help me. And I'm thinking to myself, really? And he said, I've been on a journey with God for the last two years that is completely out of anything I've experienced in the 40 years I've known the Lord. And he began to tell me some of his experiences that, for example, a year and a half ago, He'd been preaching out of the book of Revelation where Jesus said to the church of Laodicea, I stand at the door and knock. And most of us would understand that's about intimacy with God because God was not saying that to non-Christians. He was saying that to Christians wanting a greater degree of intimacy. And he said, after speaking that on a Sunday, my wife and I in our house, we've gone through several months where sometimes in the afternoon, sometimes in the middle of the night, They'll be knocking on different doors in our house. And it first started with the outside door about 1 o'clock in the morning. I got up and ran to the door, and no one's there. And I thought, well, maybe some kids are pulling some pranks on me. But it's happened uh, for months now, not just with the outside door, but with interior doors. 
And he said, do you think God could really be trying to speak to me? <laughs> Something I've never, never heard before. And then he was going through the Bible, and he got to some of the passages in the Old Testament, and also with uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, where there was a cloud of glory. And in San Diego, I know this is hard to believe if you're from Durham, but we have days where you cannot see a single cloud anywhere. It's just completely blue skies. And please restrain yourself from the sin of envy. But, uh, you know, there'll be no clouds whatsoever. And he said, I had just spoken about God's cloud of glory in the Mount of Transfiguration. And my wife and I drove home after our last Sunday service. And there was a cloud hovering right over the entrance to our house. And he said, this has happened a number of times. And he began to share with me what's been going on. And it was amazing that we ended up spending two hours together. And we then spent about, after that two hours, about a half hour praying for each other. I prayed for him as leadership team and his church. He prayed for me. But it was like I was with a best friend that I had never met before. And in the last two years, every two to three months now, we get together and we pray. I was just with them last week. And they're having times in their church now where the heaviness of God's presence is falling. He's doing things he never thought he would do before. He's standing up after he preaches Sunday morning, said, who's ever sick, come on down here. And they're seeing people healed of cancer and different diseases, things they never, ever would have done before. And as I've grown to uh, appreciate him and his heart, he's just consumed by the wonder of Christ Jesus, the majesty of Christ Jesus. And this is just one testimony I'm telling you about things in the last two to three years. There's a stirring taking place. And one of the things I'm very aware of in my own life and the life of church history is God allows us to come to a certain point that may have been yesterday's peak, but it becomes today's plateau. And if we're not careful, it becomes tomorrow's religious gutter. That God created us to go from glory to glory, strength to strength. And so even though in the past we may have arrived at a certain standard of prayer and worship and knowing the voice of God, all of a sudden we find that that's going to get to begin, begin to get stale if we don't go to the next level higher up. So I'm going to speak to you today about what I call expensive worship. And in the years since I've known this church, I've appreciated the worship you have, Ryan and the other worship leaders. You know, I've had some great times with you here worshiping the Lord. But I'm not just talking about what you do corporately, but in your hearts and what really occupies our focus. In Isaiah chapter 66, Isaiah said this in the first few verses on behalf of the Lord. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you would build for me, and where is the place of my rest? Do you know that I I honestly don't think most churches are resting places for the Holy Spirit. They're workplaces. We pray, and we say, come Holy Spirit, heal, come Holy Spirit, deliver, come Holy Spirit, bless, especially come Holy Spirit and bless the giving day. (laughs) I knew I'd get at least one amen out of that. But we invite the Holy Spirit to come and do the things he does. He saves, he heals, he delivers, he sets free the captives. 
But what about a prayer of, Lord, we want you here just because of who you are. We don't just want your hand of blessing upon our lives, although that we need that. We want to gaze upon your face of beauty. So the Lord says, I've created everything that exists, but where will I find a resting place? And he said in verse 2, all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Humility is not an outward thing. It's not sackcloth and ashes. It's not walking around, oh, woe is me. But I believe true biblical humility is one having a regard for other people, not just living out of self-centeredness, but number two, realizing our need for God, our desperation for him. I want to speak a little bit about David, particularly David bringing in the ark of God into the city of David. And I don't have time to tell the full story, but the ark, as many of you know, was that box in the tabernacle. It was about this long, this high, this wide. It was called the mercy seat. And symbolically, it's where God allowed his very glory, his, the weight of his presence to be found at. But years before, because Israel had fallen into sin, God had allowed the ark to be captured and taken away by the Philistines. But David, when he became king, because he was a lover of God and his presence, he wanted to get the ark back. And really, in some ways, David is a picture of Jesus. Oftentimes we know that Jesus was actually called son of David because David was the man who had a heart after God. And so this is really, as we talk about David bringing in the glory of God, it's in a sense it's a picture of Jesus wanting to bring us closer into relationship with the Father. More than anything else, David desired to really know and for Israel to know the glory of God. In Psalm 27, verse 4, he said, One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. His goal in wanting to be in the house of the Lord was not just to be somewhere, not just to admire the architecture or enjoy the vibe or the environment, but to gaze upon the beauty, the wonder of who the Lord was. He also wrote in Psalm 105, verse 4, Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. When Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus and he said, be filled with the Spirit, it was not a mere encouragement. It was a directive word because aside from being filled with the Spirit of God, aside from knowing the presence of God, there is no way we can possibly really live a Christ-like life. Because even Jesus himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords, he lived a life filled with the Spirit of God. He ministered by the power of the Holy Spirit. He could have done all the things he did out of his own ability and own wisdom, but he lived a life of humility. He limited himself as you and I are limited. And so he leaned into the Spirit of the Lord. I love what it says in Luke 4, and it says Jesus was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this was David's cry, Oh God, 
We want to gaze upon you. We want to know your presence. And so when David became king, one of the first things on his heart was to go to where the ark was, way off from the city, and bring it back. And I'm not going to read of the two accounts. One is in First uh, Chronicles 16. The other is in Second Samuel chapter 6. But we have two different pictures of David bringing the ark. And I want to relate some of the highlights to you. It says that he got all of the worshiping Levites together, but he also got a new cart. Now, it's safe to say, theologically speaking, that this cart may have been covered with gold. It may have had gems upon it because even the ephods that the priests wore had diamonds and gems upon it. And a lot of the implements in the temple were wood covered by gold. This cart was not just a new cart, but it was the Rolls Royce of carts. And so they went and got the ark, and they're bringing it on this new cart in the midst of great worship. And it says that they were crossing the threshing floor of a farmer, and the ark was upset And one of David's men reached out to touch it, to study it, and that man died instantly. And there's a lot we could say here, but I want to try to drive one essential point home. That any time God is speaking to your heart and calling you to move deeper into a resurrection lifestyle of knowing his power, his joy, his peace, and his favor... He's also calling you to pick up your cross in a greater way. And that this thing called Christianity, from the day you give your life to the Lord to the day you get home, it's not just now I've arrived and going to heaven, but it's a journey of learning the ways of God and learning to walk with God. And we say we're saved because we've given our life to Jesus. But it's also true to say that as you walk with Jesus, you're more saved today than you were last week. And you're going to be saved more next week than you are today. Because the word saved does not just mean once you were going to hell and now you're going to heaven. But it's the word sozo to mean become complete, to mean to grow up in Christ Jesus. And so as they cross the threshing floor... A death took place. Someone referred to it in a prophetic word about Isaiah. In the year of King Uzziah's death, one of the better kings of Israel, that's when the revelation came. And any time we're about to step into new things of God, there's oftentimes a death God calls for, even to something precious of the past that we're hanging on to. Does this make any sense whatsoever? You see, we just think more and more and more, but God is into this thing called divine transactions. And as we get more of him, guess what? He wants more of you. Mark, that was a good point. Do not be discouraged by those dead fish looks on their faces. We'll keep going on a Sunday morning in Durham, England. So David grew afraid of the Lord and angry at the Lord, and they left the ark at a house of a man named Obedidim. But it says something interesting about Obedidim and his farm there. Everything about Obedidim became blessed. Why? Because the presence of God was there. 
I have been in a number of meetings where we've seen absolute miracles take place. People healed of cancer, people healed of lameness, people healed of all sorts of things where we have not prayed for the person at all. We didn't even know they were there with that illness. But as we sang this morning out of 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17, where the Spirit is, there is liberty. And I know when I tell you this next story, some of you are going to say, oh, that can't really be true. And if you think that, just repent. But in, in a church I used to work with a lot in Dayton, Ohio, on a Sunday morning, a woman brought her mom. Her mom was about 50, 55 years old, who had never been to our church, completely blind in both eyes. When she walked out, seen perfectly in both eyes, but yet nobody prayed for her. We had no ministry time of praying for bad eyes, no word of knowledge, no laying on of hands, but just where the spirit was, there's liberty. I was in one uh, worship meeting I was leading. By leading, I, I don't mean singing. God, God loves people too much for that. But kind of uh, directing things, you know, and uh, encouraging people to respond to the Lord. And there was one point where the presence of the Lord was so strong, I gave an invitation. Anybody here who's desperate for more of the Lord, please come up now. And this is one of the stories we found out afterwards. There was a lady sitting near the back somewhere. She really wanted to come forward to get more of God, to get prayer, but she couldn't get out of her seat. One of the words for the glory of God is kabod, the weight of God's presence. And it's just like when the glory of God came down in Solomon when he dedicated the temple, the priest could not stand because of the weight of his presence. This lady could not get out of her seat. And uh, and all around them in that area, in fact, there was the, there was a guy who never went to our church, but he was there for the special worship meeting. And he said, wow, the glory of God is here. And he turns around and he looks at this woman. He says, the spirit of the Lord is resting upon you. And she said, well, what should I do? <clears throat> and he said, get up there as fast as you can for prayer. And she said, I can't. <laughs> but uh, the meeting ended like a half hour later. And as she walked out, she's fumbling around in her purse. And one of the great mysteries of life is how many items women can fit in a purse. You know, uh, I've been married for 38 years now. It amazes me the amount of things that a woman can put in her purse. But anyway, she's fumbling around in her purse trying to find the keys. And all of a sudden she realizes her hands are working perfectly. She had been had to step down from her job as an executive secretary because in both of her hands she had developed carpal tunnel syndrome, which means very difficult to move the fingers, very painful. And she was actually scheduled in a few weeks' time to have both of her hands operated on. But just being there, resting in the presence of the Lord, by the time she managed to get her car unlocked, she realized both of her hands were perfect. You see, where the spirit is, there is liberty. And what we have found, like, for example, in our church over the last 25 years and seen thousands of teenagers from broken families coming to Christ Jesus, it's not. I thought maybe someone's getting a word of knowledge from heaven. <laughs> it, it, it's not because we have so many great preachers or the sophistication of our program. 
But it's men and women who are filled with the Spirit of God. Every day, men and women, all shapes, sizes, ages, and cultural backgrounds. But see, where the Spirit is, there's a freedom to transcend barriers. And for what's impossible, all of a sudden it becomes possible. So David heard that everything about Abedidim was being blessed. His crops were growing taller. His kids were getting better grades in school. His wife got better looking. And, you know, maybe that's a sexist thing to say. Now, you know, we're in, we're in a weird world today. But anyway, uh, so David was provoked to jealousy. And this time he went to get the ark with all the worshiping Levites. But he did something different and that he researched what Moses had said originally about transporting the ark. And he found that God never said to put the ark on a cart, but it was to be carried by people. Look, he had these poles, wooden poles covered by gold that went through the rings in the base of the ark, and the Levitical priests were to carry the weight of God's glory upon their shoulders. There has been a move in the last 30, 40 years among a lot of churches internationally to try to have really slick programs. And we think if we can do the program perfectly, that that's going to be the vehicle that's going to carry in the glory of God. I want to tell you, it's not programs, it's people that carry the glory of God. Do you remember what Jesus said, Matthew 11:28? Of course you do. But he said, <laughs> he said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Do you know what the weight Jesus carried? It was the weight of the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus said he was humble and lowly, In a sense, he was saying, you know, you look at all these miracles and signs and wonders I do. He said, I'm not doing it by my own ability, even though he could have, but he did it by the Spirit. It's interesting, both in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, in 2 Peter, it says we are a nation of priests. That if you have given your life to Christ Jesus, you've been born again in the family of God. And the Hebrew word for priest is the word kohen that simply means one who draws near to God. You have been created to be a carrier of the glory of God. You have been created to be a carrier of the power of God. And so we take hold of Jesus' encouragement to seek first the kingdom of God. If you're filled with the Spirit, everywhere you go, there's the opportunity of lives being touched, healed, saved, delivered. Why? Because the kingdom is there, the spirit is there, and where he is, there is liberty. So David researched this, (coughs) and he came to the priest, and he said, because you did not carry it at the first time, the Lord made this outburst against us. And so he had to find out what is God's ways. And, you know, we were talking about this a little bit last night at dinner with some of the leaders here, and I had the privilege of meeting Peter from Ghana. And 
we were talking about this this very thing that this this is what we're made for for carrying His glory, for knowing His presence. And sometimes there's people who say, well, all we need is prophecy. All we need is the power of God. But you see, we need both the Word and the Spirit. Jesus is the Word. He is the Logos. And I've been a student of the Bible for now for 46 years, all the time I've been saved. And I can tell you, sometimes I find things as I'm meditating the scriptures or I'm reading, preparing for a message that I've read dozens and dozens and dozens of times, but all of a sudden my eyes get open to the fullness. So you see, Jesus, the glory of God, he's like, you know, St. Augustine put it this way, no matter how far you go into the glory of God, you're never going to come to the center of it. And no matter how far you go on the outskirts, you're going to never come to the edge of his ways. And David had to find out what was God's ways. And as we begin to explore worship and prayer with a new hunger for the friends of God, I believe he's going to teach you things. And it has to do with our heart knowledge of God, not just doing things because that's the way we've done it. First Chronicles chapter 15, verse 16 It says, David also commanded the chief of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers, that they should play loudly, I love that, play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. This was not a religious exercise they were doing. This was not a burden. This was something that brought excitement to them. And I think we need a check in our hearts that when we think about going on Sunday mornings to worship God, is it something we've got to do or is it something we get to do? When it it got very silent at that point, didn't it? When it comes to praying on Monday morning, is it something we've got to do or is it a privilege of what we get to do? When it comes to seeking the face of the Lord, knowing him, knowing his peace and his joy, not just his blessings, but knowing his presence, is it a religious duty or is it the high privilege we have as the sons and daughters of God? Expensive worship always costs. It always costs. Hebrews 13:15 says offer up the sacrifice of praise to God. And we think, well why is it a sacrifice of praise? Why is it a sacrifice to worship God? Because authentic worship means you're taking your eyes of your heart off of the unholy trinity of me, myself and I. It means I'm not here to focus on my problems. I'm not here to think about what I'm going to be doing next week. I'm not here just to pursue the blessings of God. But God, I'm choosing to lose myself in the goodness of who you are. True worship always costs. And as David, it says in 2 Samuel chapter 6, As they began to bring the ark to the city of David, it says that they stopped 
every six steps, and they sacrificed an oxen. Now, we think of an oxen, oh, it's just an animal out there in the fields, but a farmer could earn a living by having just one oxen to pull the plow. An oxen for a farmer in those days is what like a caterpillar or a John Deere tractor is for a farmer today. It was of great, great value. And the people that study the land and all of that in Jerusalem, they say that where Obadiah was was somewhere between 7 and 14 miles from that part of Jerusalem that we call the city of David. If you take a medium mount, let's say it's about nine and a half miles. If the road from Obadiah to the city of David was nine, ten miles, that means they probably sacrificed about 2,500 oxen. That was very expensive worship. Now, it's rather a winding road, but if you could stand on a dirt road and look in a straight line where 2,500 oxen had been sacrificed over 9 or 10 miles, you would only see two things, dirt and blood, dirt and blood, dirt and blood. Not a very attractive picture, is it? That was a prophetic picture of the road of Calvary. The dirt road that Jesus carried that cross to be crucified on. A road of dirt and blood. You see, your love to God is so valuable to him that he gave his very best. It was expensive to God what he did in giving his very best Jesus for you and I. He didn't give his second best or third best or fourth best or fifth best. He gave his very best, his only begotten son. And so the question is, if we say that we love God, it's not just a matter of us getting religiously busy. Sometimes we think about, well, what is the opposite of really loving God? And we think, okay, I'm going to get busy and I'm really going to serve God. But, you know, the, the, the enemy of intimacy with God, it, it's not necessarily sin, although sin is wrong because it's destructive behavior and we reap what we sow, but it's a pharisaical-like busyness where we substitute all the sacrifices we make and the things we do, saying this will please God. No, it's your heart God is after, not just your energy. Jesus said to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his time, he said, truly I say to you, the tax collectors, tax collectors who were despised by the people, the tax collectors basically were informants to the Roman Empire about how much money everybody was making because the economy was all kind of under the table. The people hated the tax collectors. But he said the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the one that you perceive as blatant sinners, he said, they are closer to the kingdom of God than you are. But yet the Pharisees weren't involved in prostitution or kind of over sin like that. But you see, they had pride in their religious busyness, all the things they did, all their activity. 
Yes, God wants us to serve him sacrificially, but that's to come out of our love, not to be a substitute for love. And so I want to draw your attention now a little bit to the New Testament. And most of you know about Martha and Mary, the two sisters of Lazarus. Jesus would oftentimes, when he was passing through that area, stay at the house of Martha. Martha had an amazing gift of hospitality. And it says in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, As they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to his teaching, just gazing upon him in adoration, as it were. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do we not care? Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered and said, Martha, Martha, you are so anxious and troubled about so many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, let me qualify one thing. Oftentimes, as this passage is preached on, people attack Martha. And I think that's wrong, because if it had not been for Martha's gift of hospitality, Jesus never would have been there in the first place. The ministry of Martha represents our ministry to humanity, reaching out, feeding the poor, doing all that sort of thing. But Mary it says, actually chose the better portion. I've researched this, and in the original language, when it says the better portion, the good portion, it actually means the richer portion. Now, you have a lot of great food and a lot of great cultural things in the United Kingdom, but I'm sorry, for the most part, you really don't know how to do barbecue. Barbecue is like jazz. I'm sorry, it's an American thing. You know, it's it spread all over the world. But if you really want good barbecue, you got to go to the States. Where we used to live, a few miles away, there was a small barbecue place called City Barbecue. And it wouldn't matter whether I was a week and a half in the UK or Germany or, in, you know, I could be in Seoul, Korea. After about a week and a half of what people told me was good grilled meat, I began to hunger for city barbecue. And city barbecue, one of their specialties, actually comes from Texas. It's called Texas smoked beef brisket. They, took the, they take this thick piece of beef brisket, and with mesquite wood charcoal, they smoke it very slowly for at least 14 hours. And when you cut into that, you don't even need a knife. You just take your fork, and it just falls apart. And the smoke that's infused into that beef brisket steak after 14 hours, it makes me want to get on a plane right now and say adios and go back to States. I'm sorry, but it is the better portion. I've had what you call barbecued ribs in the U.K. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, it's not really barbecued ribs, it's pseudo-barbecued ribs. You need to get on a plane and go to the States. It's one of the few things that we do well. But Martha's portion of ministering to the humanity of Jesus 
It's what got Jesus in the house. It's a great value. But I tell you, even more than our ministry to man, God puts a premium on our ministry to his presence. Worshiping him in spirit and truth. Calling upon, spending time with him in prayer and worship. Martha ministered to the humanity of Christ, but Martha ministered to his spirit. So, a while goes by, maybe a year, year and a half, and Lazarus, their brother, very good friends with Jesus, he got very, very sick. And it says in John chapter 11 that Martha sent message and said, Jesus, Lazarus whom you love is dying, come quickly. But Jesus didn't go quickly, did he? Waited several days. By the time he got there, Lazarus was already dead. How many of you know what we feel like a crisis God is perceiving as just an opportunity to prepare us for breakthrough? About five of you are excited about that. There's a message there, but we don't have time for that. But finally, Jesus arrives at the village, and Lazarus has been dead for several days. Now, Martha, who loves Jesus dearly, she comes out to him and she says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In, in effect, she was rebuking him. She was saying, you have time to go throughout all of Israel. <clears throat> You're healing all these lepers, opening blind eyes, healing, uh, you know, opening deaf ears, healing blind eyes. Couldn't you have found the time to come here and pray for our brother? But... She continued on by saying, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said, excuse me. Jesus said to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And then she went on her way. Now, I just want to make one comment about this passage. That as Jesus is saying, your brother will rise again. Mary is taking that and relegating that biblical, now biblical promise for the sweet by and by. She did not realize that Jesus was giving her a now word. And when we read certain promises, like God wants to pour out his spirit, God wants to release his glory, or as it says in Galatians 3, 5, that God wants to do miracles in our midst, So many Christians, they take certain promises and say, yes, when we get to heaven, everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be glorious. But the Apostle Paul said every promise in the Bible because of Christ Jesus is now yes and amen. There are so many things that God wants to do right now, but we're just so stuck You know, the the standard of our past experiences, it's hard for us to believe God can do more than our eyes have seen, our ears have heard, more than we can understand. We believe that for heaven, but do we believe it for right now? When we get these prophetic words like we've had, or you hear a message 
that God wants to increase his glory and power in our midst, we say, well, we know heaven's going to be wonderful. No. The promise of God is that the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. There is a move of the Spirit coming beyond what we've seen in the current church age. So Martha leaves Jesus, but now her sister, Mary, comes to Jesus. And it says, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She rebuked Jesus, too. She basically said exactly what Martha said. Why couldn't you have come here? You've got time to heal everybody else. Why couldn't you have come and prayed for our brother? Mary was just as distraught, just as frustrated, had just as much questions for Jesus as Martha did. But Mary did one thing Martha did not do. She fell at his feet in worship. This was a sacrifice of praise. In the midst of her questions, the midst of her frustration, the midst of her disappointment, because if we're honest, at times all of us are disappointed in God. We have certain expectations that are not fulfilled, and it's hard for us to realize God is working something better. But she moved past her frustration and disappointment, and she fell at his feet, because even in the midst of all of her questions, she still had to worship Jesus. And it says when Jesus saw her, he was moved. And so he went with her to where the the tomb was, and he said, roll away the stone. And it's interesting what Martha said. She said, well, by now the body's going to stink. He's been dead four days, meaning this is an insolvable problem. It's too late, God. You can't do anything about it. But Jesus said to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus is not talking about just when we get to heaven. He's not talking about the sweet by and by. He's talking about the dirty now and now. In the midst of all the problems, all the confusion, he's talking about the glory of God breaking loose. When I first, in in my church leadership team in San Diego many, many years ago, late 70s, early 80s, we started praying for the sick. We began to see a few healings. But for several years, we were not able to break into a greater level of creative authority from the miraculous. And we were praying and praying, Lord, how do we do this? And one day when church ended on Sunday morning, a woman came up to me and said, my mother's in the hospital They're going to remove her colon tonight in operation. Her colon is destroyed by cancer. And she's going to have to have a plastic bag in her stomach. And every few years, we'll have to replace that. She said, do you think you could come to the hospital this afternoon before they prep her for the operation and pray that God would do a miracle? And so I felt in my heart we should do it. And I said, we'll meet you in three hours. I went home and I prayed for two hours. Oh, God. I know you want to do miracles, but we've only seen a certain level of healings. We have not seen creative miracles. How are we supposed to do this, Lord? How are we supposed to pray? And God, in all of his encouragement and kindness, didn't say anything. He just said, go. 
So we get to the hospital, and I've got two friends with me, and we meet the daughter. We go up, and this woman has a private room, and, and you know, sure enough, they're, they, they know her colon's destroyed by cancer. They're going to remove an operation that night. And uh, I, I'm still thinking, Lord, how are we supposed to pray? I remembered hearing a teaching that when you pray for people in hospital rooms, first take authorities over demonic spirits of sickness and death. Because that's like usually the residential spirit in most hospital rooms. It's not like you go to a hospital for a vacation, right? So I couldn't think of anything else, so we did that. And then without thinking about it, I said, Holy Spirit, would you please come and fill this room with your glory and grace? And I know that a lot of times I share this, people think I'm exaggerating, but all of a sudden... The glory of God was there in that room in a way I had never experienced before. There was a literally a, a brightness in the room beyond what the fluorescent lights were doing. There was a profound sense of the holiness of the Lord. It was the, the, the place was so thick with God. My two friends and I, right there in the hospital room, we got on our knees. We began to start singing worship songs to God which if you've ever heard me singing, you realize that's really a bold move. And we worshiped the Lord for about half hour. And then we sensed this heaviness lifted, and we got up, and I prayed briefly for the woman, but I said, listen, God has been here, and where the Spirit is, there's liberty. Whatever he's going to do, he's done. And the daughter called me early the next morning. They started to do the operation, but they never finished it. They never removed her colon, and they just stitched her back up because to their shock, the colon was in 100% perfect condition. There was no cancer whatsoever. That was the first miracle we experienced, and it's one of the most important lessons in ministry I've ever had, that in the kingdom of God, it's not always exactly what you know, but it's who you know. John's excited, so I'm just going to focus on John. You people are on your own. Peter, I thought at least you would bring some enthusiasm from Ghana here, but uh, I see that finger. <laughs> Not even a full hand. Just <laughs> uh, but I'm telling you, Jesus said, did I not tell you if you believe you would see the glory of God? So what does it take to raise the dead brother? Symbolically speaking, as we talk about the lost teenagers out there, as we talk about, you know, hurting broken people within here, we talk about people with diseases, people fighting suicide, people trying to overcome addictions. What does it take to raise the dead brother? It's not just the methodology and the programs, although God wants us to learn the right way of doing things, but it's his presence. Where the Spirit is, there's liberty. And to start off, to end up where we started off with in Isaiah 66, God says, I made everything that exists. What will you do for me? But he says, to this one I will look, to one who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. And that is not an outward religious facade. It's not something you can manufacture, but... It's simply the condition of your heart, realizing we have a need for God and letting God know we're desperate for him. Are you still alive? 
Tonight, we're going to be praying for the sick, and I have no doubt the Lord's going to be doing some healings, and I believe even some miracles. So I want to encourage you, if you have a family member or a friend who's fighting an ongoing sickness, uh, one of the things we've seen a lot in the last 20 years is God healing people with severe cancer and uh, epilepsy diseases like that. So pray if you have a friend or a family member who's really got fighting ongoing sickness, pray about inviting them. But uh, let's stand as we come to a close here. We've got seven minutes. Is that correct? Wow. <laughs> so <laughs> push it to Turn to the person next to you and say, we've only got five more minutes. Don't bother me now. <laughs> Can I have, uh, yeah, come on up if you would. I love this man. I invite him up. He comes running. I wish I had the authority everywhere I go. <laughs> this, just lift your hands to the Lord and close your eyes. And Would you pray out loud after me? To lift your hands to the Lord, there's nothing mas- uh, mystical or magical about it. But to lift your hands to the Lord is an outward sign because your body, soul, and spirit of saying, God, I not only surrender everything to you, but I tell you, I need you. I'm desperate for you. So just close your eyes. If it's not too religious, hold your hands out to the Lord. And would you pray out loud after me? God Almighty, you have given me your best. Jesus, would you teach me? what it really means to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, my soul pants for you as the deer pants for water. As a church, we cry out to you with the prayer of David. We want to gaze upon your beauty. We need your hand of blessing, but the cry of our heart, we want to behold your beauty. Father, you gave us everything. You gave us Jesus. Teach us how to completely give our hearts to you. Not just our religious habits but help us to give our hearts to you. Just close your eyes and just allow the Holy Spirit to fill you right now. Just allow the peace, the righteousness, the joy of the Holy Spirit to begin to fill you right now. Just take in the presence of the Lord.